Good morning. I had the privilege a few years ago of going to Baltimore for a conference that was there. And I was excited about the conference, but I was really excited about going and seeing Fort McHenry. I'd never been there before and thought, well, this would be a great opportunity to, uh, to go on out there. And on my way, I was waiting. I think I decided to take a bus out there. This was back in the days before Uber or before I was aware of Uber. So I was trying to figure out the whole bus system. I was standing on the corner waiting for a bus, and I overheard a couple of guys talking next to me. I couldn't help be drawn into their conversation. I kind of looked over, and this one guy was talking to this other guy saying, but, you know, I'm not sure that's what Isaiah means in that particular passage. I think he means this. And they were talking back and forth about Isaiah there on the street corner of Baltimore. (laughs) And I just kind of looked over at them, and and I realized, oh, they're probably here for the same conference that I am. And so anyway, we got, we got to talk, and turns out they, exact, they were exactly, but they were like talking like deep theology on Isaiah. This wasn't just like, how do you spell Isaiah? It was, it was like major theology in Isaiah. Anyway, as we parted company, I just thought, you know, that is what the kingdom of God is going to be like. You're walking down the street, and everybody's talking about it. Total strangers are having deep conversations about the Lord. Anyway, so I get out to Fort McHenry, and it was just delightful to be able to be there. I love going to historical places anyway, probably one of the reasons I love going to Israel so much, uh, because going where it really happened, you know, makes it so much more real for you than just reading about it. And so to go out there and to, to see where Patrick Henry wrote the Star Spangled Banner, and or at least where he could see it, and the, the actual hole in the ground where they think the flagpole was. I mean, this wasn't that long ago. We're having to guess where the flagpole was. So it was either there, it was here. But anyway, a couple of, I saw wherever it was, I saw one of the two or three places that it probably stood. And it was, uh, it was fantastic to be able to be there. Another historical place that uh, Kathy and I have been to is Philadelphia. And, you know, you go to Philadelphia and there's lots of great stuff to do. I mean, you can see Ben Franklin's grave. You can run the Rocky Steps. I ran the Rocky Steps in Philadelphia. Uh, Just ran right up to the top. Actually got some slow motion video of me at the top. You know, I I probably should have brought it with music and everything. But, of course, what really makes Philadelphia so wonderful is not even the Liberty Bell, as, as as neat as that is to see, but across the street from the Liberty Bell is Liberty Hall. I think that's what it's called. But it's where our nation began. It's right there in Philadelphia, and you can walk in the room where the Declaration of Independence was signed and where, I mean, it was all right there. And you just think, it's weird to think that that our country is young enough where I can stand in a building, in a room, and say the country actually began in this room. It was sort of surreal to realize that uh, you're, you're standing in a place of history. And of course, our country began because our country or the, the uh, uh, colonies had these grievances against the, the, the reigning king at that time. Well, our country is not the only country that's had that situation. We looked last time in the book of First Kings at how Israel itself was dealing with a similar circumstance where 
ten of the tribes came to the uh, the reigning king at that time, which was Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, and told Rehoboam, said, look, Solomon was hard on us. Now you're king. Lighten up, and we'll be glad to be your servants. And instead of lightening up, Rehoboam says, you know what? I'm actually going to make it harder. And they said, well, that's great. We're out of here. You know, see ya, never. And they took, they took off and went back up, up north. And uh, so, it, it, you know, our, the separation of country from king has, is not a new thing with us, but we see it actually here in the scriptures. And, of course, there are lessons for us as these two nations now divide. So let's look together at 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings 11. Remember last week we talked about the fact that we're starting a new series on just sort of hand-picking ten different kings from the books of Kings and Chronicles. We focused last time on Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, who gave the royally wrong response that I just referred to. Instead of being a servant to his subjects, he decided he was going to rule them with an iron fist, and he lost ten of the twelve tribes altogether. Well, the other individual that we sort of skipped over and said we'll talk about him next week is Jeroboam, Jeroboam. And last week we looked at chapter 12, but we're going to start in chapter 11. Chapter 11. If you looked at the very beginning of chapter 11, you would see it starts to get into the bad parts of Solomon's reign. And this is what happens when Solomon, we're told in verse 1, loved many foreign women, which in itself is not bad, but uh, the foreign women brought their foreign gods along, and Solomon began through his nepotism and his favoritism of his wives worshiping and setting up altars to worship these foreign gods. And the Lord was angry with Solomon for doing this, and he did this for many years because verse 4 tells us when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Several things happen in the verses that follow, but then if you look in verse 14, we see God raises up an adversary to Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. But then if you look down at verse 23, there's another God raised up another adversary to him, Rezon, the son of Eliada. And then, verse 26, Jeroboam. So let's look at uh, 26, just that verse there, and then we'll skip a few before we get into the heart of the story. We're told, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Zeradah, Solomon's servant, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also rebelled against the king. The verses that follow right here immediately after basically tell the story of Jeroboam, servant of Solomon. That's all he was. I mean, he's not like royal family, royal blood, anything. He's just one of the servants. In fact, we're told he's from Ephraim. He's not even from Judah. He's from the tribe of Ephraim. But uh, Jeroboam is walking out on the road one day, and this prophet comes along, and the prophet has this cloak and comes up to Jeroboam, and he tears the cloak in 12 pieces, and he tells Jeroboam, take ten of these pieces. So Jeroboam takes ten pieces, and the prophet says, the Lord has given you ten of the twelve tribes, and you will be king over ten of these twelve tribes. 
Uh, Look down at verse 37 now, and let's get a little bit more of the context. We read, this is the Lord speaking through the prophet, I will take you and you shall reign over whatever you desire, and and you shall be king over Israel. And then it will be that if you listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight by observing my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build you an enduring house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. Thus I will afflict the descendants of David for this, but not always. Solomon therefore sought to put Jeroboam to death, but Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt, and he was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. So, I don't know if you realize the huge potential significance of what we just read, but that's amazing. And I'm actually still amazed every time I read verse 38, that God promised or offered, I should say, to build an enduring house for Jeroboam just as he built for David. Remember, God promised David an eternal kingdom, a, a, a permanent kingdom that someone from David's house would rule on David's throne over an eternal kingdom. This is the Davidic covenant. And from the house, from this covenant, we get the Lord Jesus Christ, who will reign over the kingdom of God in that kingdom that I mentioned when everyone's talking about Isaiah on the street corner. And, but God says to uh, Jeroboam, the same promise that I made for David, I'm offering you. That's amazing. How would this have worked out? We have no idea how it would have worked out, except there would have been two enduring kingdoms. One, the house of David, obviously through which would have come the Messiah, and then this other, this other house of Jeroboam. Just an amazing promise, but it is all contingent. It wasn't unconditional like David's was. It was contingent on whether or not Jeroboam personally would follow God. What an opportunity Jeroboam had. Well, Jeroboam flees from Solomon. When Solomon hears about this, you can understand how Solomon would feel like it was a threat. And of course, he wasn't in the best frame of mind spiritually at this time. So Solomon tries to kill Jeroboam. Jeroboam flees to Egypt and stays there till Solomon dies. Okay, well then last week we read chapter 12. And so we know the context of that. Everybody goes up to Shechem to crown the son of Solomon and Rehoboam, Rehoboam, you know, thumps his chest and says, no, I'm going to make it harder on you. And then so now the northern tribes say, well, we're gone. And now Jeroboam gets those ten tribes, and now Jeroboam is king of the north, Rehoboam is king of the south. You've got two different nations, whereas prior to this, in the, during the time of Saul, David, and Solomon, for 120 years Israel was a united nation. Now they are a divided nation nation. So we're in chapter 12. Look down at verse 25 as we sort of see the problem now of our passage. Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So this is what Jeroboam is thinking in his mind. 
He wastes no time. He builds Shechem as his capital, also builds a, a city, Penuel, on the east side of the Jordan River to watch out for any invasions from there. But then he feels a threat from the south. But it's not a, a military threat. It is a, it is a um, uh, sort of a national mood threat. He realizes he's got a problem now. you got a big problem now. you got two kingdoms. you got two kings. you got two capitals, but only one place to worship, Jerusalem. Jeroboam knows this, and he knows that when, it's, when it comes time to worship, everyone's going to go back to Jerusalem to worship because that's what the Word of God says. And Jeroboam thinks, well, if they go down to worship in Jerusalem, then their hearts are going to lean back to the southern king and the southern kingdom, and they'll kill me. Where does that leave me? Wait, wait a minute, Jeroboam. Didn't God just promise you, if you will just obey me, I will give you an enduring kingdom? Jeroboam was like, never even heard that. He's immediately saying, what can I do to secure my kingdom when God had just promised him a secure kingdom if he would simply obey? That Jeroboam couldn't see around the fact that people from his country would leave his country and go worship in the southern kingdom in Judah. He felt hugely threatened by that. Well, a few lessons from our text we'll get, but here's the first one. The world will tell you that obedience to God will threaten your security. Don't believe it. The world will tell you that obedience to God will threaten your security. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. I love this quote from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says this, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you were listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you were listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Boy, that's so true. This is what Jeroboam did. And notice it says that he said in his heart. He's talking to himself. This is what's going to happen. He's talking to himself, or he's listening to himself, as opposed to talking to himself. If he had said, wait a minute, Jeroboam, I know that that's a fear, but let's filter what I'm feeling through Scripture. What's Scripture? Scripture, God has promised me an enduring kingdom if I will just obey him. So Jeroboam could have, you know, turned the tide from what he was hearing in his head to now talking in his head, and it would have been all, all okay. But he didn't do that. It's easy to point the finger at Jeroboam until we realize that we do the same thing very often don't we? We know the Bible. We know all kinds of scripture. But our feelings are so loud sometimes, so overwhelming, and our emotions tend to take over. I don't know if you realize it, but when we make purchase decisions, these are often emotional decisions, not logical decisions. And marketers, of course, they, they know this that we make decisions based on emotion, not necessarily based on logic. It is, it is a fact. And we need to filter our thoughts and our feelings. It is true that we feel what we feel. So let, let me just get your arms around that for a second. It's true that we feel what we feel. 
But that doesn't mean that what we feel is true. It is true that we are feeling what we're feeling, but that doesn't mean what we're feeling is true. And it's so important that we make that distinction. Just because you feel something doesn't mean it's true. We are not infallible. In fact, we are fallible, which is why we have to filter our feelings through the Bible, through the Word of God. Jeroboam did not do this. If Jeroboam were to worship like the Bible said, if he would allow his people to go down to Jerusalem, he feels like his security would be threatened. But no, our lesson tells us the world will tell you that obedience to God will threaten your security. Don't believe it. Look what happens in verse 28. Based on his fear. So the king consulted and made two golden calves. And he said to them, meaning to the people, It's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set one at Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Now this, be, this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. I don't know if you've got in your margin there for in verse 28 where Jeroboam says, Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. If you have in your margin a reference to Exodus 32, verse 4. Exodus 32, verse 4, this is the almost identical. In fact, I checked in the Hebrew text. It is almost identical, even in the spelling, of what, uh, of what was said to the people when they made the golden calf when they came out of Egypt. Behold your God, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. Here is a substitute for you to worship. And now here is Jeroboam, ironically, fresh out of Egypt. Interesting connection. And the thought is not so much that this is the God, but some commentators obviously think, okay, we're just flat out worshiping the calf. But some also believe that it is um, the Egyptian way of doing things was you would have this, this calf and then you would imagine that your God is riding on the calf. Some believe that Jeroboam was trying to have the people worship the true Lord and that the true Lord would be representing riding these calves. I don't know how you slice it, but it's wrong because the text tells us in verse 30 it was a sin. So however you want to try to justify it, verse 30 tells us it was a sin. And the people went, we're told, to worship as far as the one at Dan. It's too much for you. Now, if you would, keep your finger here in chapter 12 and turn back to your maps. You've got some maps somewhere in the back of your Bible. And try to find one that shows the tribes, if you've got one that shows the tribes of Israel. And if not, just find one that shows Israel with various cities. Bible maps are notoriously bad, so I hope that you also have an atlas in your library at home to be able to look through. The tribes, if you look at the tribes, and if you don't have tribes, either way, just find the Dead Sea. It's toward the bottom. Sometimes it's called the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea. And if you look at the top of the Dead Sea and then look to the left, you should see Jerusalem. Okay? You, you with me? And then if you look north of Jerusalem, you should see Bethel. All right, so far so good. 
So, and notice, if you do have the tribes, that Bethel is right on the border between Ephraim and Benjamin. So Benjamin and Judah are in the south together, and then right on the border is Bethel. And then there's Ephraim, which starts, it's the southernmost tribe of the northern kingdom. And then at the very far north, I don't know if you can see, the very far north, if you find Tyre on the coast, go to the right or to the east, and you should see Dan. That's the northern extent of the northern kingdom. So he put one calf at Dan at the very top border of his country. He put another calf at Bethel at the very bottom border of his country. And not only was Bethel the bottom border of his country, but it was basically like, I don't know, putting a, putting a, a roadblock on I-35 on the Red River between Texas and Oklahoma. It's like, you can't go into Oklahoma unless you go right by this area. And so to put that calf there at Bethel, anybody from the north who was going to the south to worship in Jerusalem could be stopped and and sort of be swayed to say, look, you don't have to go all the way to Jerusalem. You 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 got your own place to worship right here. You know, stay patriotic. Stay loyal. If you want to worship the Lord, that's great. Do it right here. And then, of course, up in Dan. I don't know if you've ever been to Israel or if you ever go to Israel and go to Dan, you will see why people wanted to go as far as Dan. Notice the text specifically says in verse 30 that people went as far as the one as Dan. It was far. But why would you go up there? It's like Palm Springs up there. It's beautiful. Rivers everywhere. Lush. I mean, if you, you know, if you had a place to go and worship, would you choose to go to Jerusalem or would you go to Palm Springs? That's kind of what they were up against. And the king was appealing to the laziness of the human nature. So turn back to 1 Kings 12. The king basically says, look, you want worship? No problem. But you don't need to go all the way up to Jerusalem. You don't need to do that. You can sacrifice right here in your own country. Look, look at else what Rehoboam did. Verse 31. And he made houses on high places and made priests from among all the people who were not of the sons of Levi. Jeroboam instituted a feast in the eighth month on the 15th day of the month, like the feast which is in Judah. And he went up to the altar, and thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves which he had made. And he stationed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. Then he went up to the altar which he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel and went up to to the altar to burn incense. Notice all these substitutes. He makes substitute temples, substitute high places. Don't have to go to Jerusalem. We got one right. We got a temple at a location convenient to you. Substitute priests. Supposed to only be from the tribe of Levi. Well, we can let that wiggle. Anybody want to be a priest? Great. I got an online form you can fill out. Just click it, and you're good to go. So substitute temple, substitute priest, and a substitute feast. You don't have to go down in the, um, the feast that is in Judah in the seventh month. Instead, go a feast that is in the eighth month. And the reason that he did this is because in the north, the corn ripened a month later than in the south. So he thought, well, just move the whole whole feast a month. 
same day, the 15th, though, but we'll just move it. And so substitute temples, substitute priests, substitute feasts, substitute gods, if you want to say it that way, all because it's too much to go worship at Jerusalem. Well, here's the second lesson. The world will tell you that your spiritual life should be convenient. Don't believe it. The world will tell you that your spiritual life should be convenient. Don't believe it. Your spiritual life is not convenient. It's hard. What's convenient is to not control your temper and to get angry just any time you want. What's convenient is to not look away, men, when there is a, a immodest woman walking down the street or whatever. It's easier not to do that. What's convenient is to be a glutton when we eat instead of having self-control. You see what I'm saying? The spiritual life isn't convenient. It is hard. It, it demands of us a, a self-denial. The world will tell you that your spiritual life needs to be convenient. Don't believe it. Years ago when Kathy and I attended a church in Denton, um, I was talking with a merchant who actually had a shop very near where our church was. In fact, it was like right around the corner from it. And, uh, you know, struck up a conversation with him and, and eventually decided to invite him to church. And he says, well, thank you very much, but he says, I don't live in Denton, and that's kind of a long way to drive. I looked at him and said, you come here every day for work a block away from the church. He just looked at me. So it was kind of an obvious thing that, look, if, if, if something's important, you make a way. If something's not important, you make an excuse. Rehoboam gave excuses, made it easy. He appealed to the laziness of the human spirit and offered all of these substitutes to doing the hard work of going up to Jerusalem. And it was hard. I mean, if you lived in the north, going up to Jerusalem was hard. It's too much for you. Well, there was some truth in that. It's, it was a sacrifice to go all the way to Jerusalem. Our spiritual life is never going to be easy. It is going to seem too far to go, too hard to go, too much work. But the world and the flesh and the devil are going to try to play off of that. They're going to say, you know what, whatever your need is, there's an easier, easier way for you to satisfy that. In fact, there's about 6,000 easy ways to satisfy that. Why don't you choose one of those? The spiritual life does require sacrifice. But the truth is, you know, we sacrifice to whatever our God is. Whatever is important in our lives, we give it our time, we give it our money, we give it our passion, we give it our thoughts. What's important to us, we sacrifice for. It doesn't have to be God. It's other stuff, too. We give time, money to the things that are important. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, don't worry about all these other things that the pagans run after, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these other things that the world chases will be added to you as well. So not only do you get God's kingdom and God's righteousness, but you get all the other stuff that the world is chasing. God's provision for you. 
Jeroboam appealed to the laziness of the human spirit and not to make this thing crawl on all fours, but he says it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. And this is what the world does for us. It acts like it cares for us. I'm thinking about you. It's too much for you to go up. No, the reality is Jeroboam was thinking about himself, wasn't he? He didn't care about them. What he cared about is that they go to Jerusalem, and then that's going to make him, you know, he's going to lose his kingdom or, or his life if worse came to worse. Idolatry always markets sin as benefiting you when the reality is it doesn't. Henry Blackaby wrote, An idol is anything you turn to for help when God told you to turn to him for help. An idol is anything you turn to for help when God told you to turn to him for help. St. Augustine wrote, Idolatry is worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that is meant to be worshiped. We usually don't think of ourselves as, you know, idolaters. You would not look at the person sitting next to you or across the aisle from you as an idolater with a capital I. Well, except maybe, except for her. (laughs) Just kidding, just kidding. I wasn't pointing at anybody. But who is your idol? You know, if we were to ask that outside of this context, you can't really ask that objectively in church. Who is your idol? We immediately get spiritual. We think, oh, I shall have no other idols, you know, before the Lord. The Lord is our God, you know, et cetera. We know all the verses, but the reality is we struggle with idolatry in this life. Remember the very last verse of the book of 1 John? Little children, keep yourself, guard yourself from idols. Wrote that to Christians. Typically, we like to think of our our Christian idols as materialism, credit cards, television, workaholism. I mean, these, these can be gods, sure. But honestly, we can't imagine that our indulgences or our addictions or our overeating or our weaknesses are idols. I mean, come on. They're weaknesses. That's all they are. But it is a struggle for us. Idolatry is a struggle for us just as it was in the time of Jeroboam. Jeroboam played off of this weakness, and like the devil does with us, it's too much for you to obey the Lord. It's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. It's too much for you to be faithful in this instance. Think about the thing that you struggle with to be faithful. Some of us, it's the same things, but for for many of us, it's very different. We've all got our individual weaknesses and they seem to be consistent. Remember once when I was uh, tucking in one of my daughters when they were small and precious. <laughs> I was at the end of the day, and I had, I guess, the five o'clock shadow or whatever. But I leaned down to kiss her, and she says, "Oh, Daddy, you're you're prickly." She says, "What? Your face has prickles." That's what she said. Your face has prickles. Go wash them off. Go wash off the prickles. And I've thought a lot about how shaving is like dealing with sin because you got to do it every day and it tends to come back in the same places (laughs) it really does there's always going to be a Dan to compete with your Jerusalem 
There's always going to be something that is too easy to compete with what's too hard in the Christian life, a counterfeit. And although it promises to satisfy, it doesn't satisfy. Its intention is to deceive and to take you down. Jeroboam's fear is that the house, that the kingdom was going to return to the house of David. What did God promise? Jeroboam, your house will endure just like David's house will endure if you'll just obey me. Jeroboam went south on that. He went south on that. Turn a couple of chapters over and look at chapter 14, verse 7. Chapter 14, verse 7. This is the end of Jeroboam's reign, and we're told, Go say to Jeroboam, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do only that which is right in my sight. You also have done more evil than all who were before you, and have gone and made for yourself other gods and molten images to provoke me to anger, and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I am bringing calamity on the house of Jeroboam, and I will cut off from Jeroboam every male person, both bond and free in Israel, and I will make a clean sweep of the house of Jeroboam as one sweeps away dung until it is all gone. So in other words, Jeroboam didn't hold up his end of the bargain, and therefore God did not hold up his. He walked unfaithfully. Interesting, you've got the house of of David, the house of Jeroboam. And as we move on through all these kings that we're going to look at, we're going to see an interesting contrast. Whenever the king did right, he's compared to David. He did right just like his father David. Whenever the king did evil, he's usually compared to Jeroboam. Jeroboam is now the standard of evilness. David is now the standard of righteousness. These two kings who could have had, or Jeroboam could have had an enduring house just like David. Oh, and archaeology gives us a wonderful little bow on the top of Jeroboam's life. If you were to go to the Israel Museum today, we could walk over to a wall and see a, uh, it's called a stele, S-T-E-L-E, stele. It's basically a stone with an inscription written on it in Aramaic. And it dates to about 100 years after the time of David. And it was written by an enemy of Israel, uh, uh, Haziel, an, an Aramean, who at the time boasted of his victory over this king, this king, this king. But one thing he mentions in it is, I... I had a victory over this particular king of the house of David. Now, prior to this being found, and it was only found in 1993-1994, so that's not long ago when you think about it. And then when you think about it, it sort of is. It was like 30 years ago. It shows you how old it's easy. 1993 seems, ah, you know, last week. (laughs) Anyway, but the Dan Stele was found in Dan, which is why it's called that, and it talks about the house of David as a historical fact that it's there. Prior to the Dan Stele being found, critics said, you know, there's not any archaeological evidence evidence of David at all. In fact, they sort of said, you know, David is kind of like, King David is kind of like King Arthur. He's just a legend. There's no proof that he ever really existed. 
Well, the Dan Steele, I like to call it the Steely Dan. <laughs> but the Dan Steele gave proof that not only David was a historical person, but that David had a dynasty, the house of David. Um, we didn't know it at the time when uh, the uh, stele was found, but there was also another stele that had been discovered about the same time, ironically, called the Meshe stele. It's a Moabite stele that talked about the house of David. And also there may be a reference, you know, now this, things are sort of coming out now that we know what we're looking for. Uh, down in Egypt at a, the Karnak Temple down there, there may be a reference to the highland of David. That one's a little more iffy. But with the dance delay, there's no question. In fact, Eric Klein from George Washington University said it well. He said this, At a single blow, the finding of this inscription brought to an end the debate and settled the question of whether David was a, an actual historical person. Well, that's nice, but so what? What does all this have to do with our spiritual life? As, you know, archaeology is great. I mean, we could, it could be enough to say, yay, archaeology supports the Bible, there was a David. And that's, that's great. We could seriously just end there and, and call it wonderful. But it's also wonderful that in the very city where the king tried to downplay the house of David, Jeroboam says, house of David, nope, can't have that. It's got to be the house of Jeroboam. In the very city where Jeroboam tried to downplay the house of David, a piece of archaeology, the only, one of the only pieces of archaeology was found that venerated the house of David. This is how God works. This is how our God works. The very place Jeroboam trying to minimize David's house, David's house, God used archaeology to elevate and vindicate the house of David. I love that. Only God can do that kind of thing. And an additional irony is... God had an enemy of Israel write it. Wonderful. Well, here's the third lesson. The Lord will vindicate his promises to you one day. Believe it. The Lord will vindicate his promises to you one day. Believe it. But you know, prior to 1993 and the discovery of this stele, we were like, all we've got to go on for David existing is the Bible. And for many of us, that's enough. But for many other people, it wasn't enough. And God vindicated his promise to David that not only David existed, but that he had a dynasty. By, digging, by people digging out of the ground, they found something that vindicated and supports the word of God. The same is true for us. You know, the cruelty of others in our lives, even demonic schemes against us, or to quote Paul or to paraphrase Paul, that there is nothing, height, depth, things to come, things in the past, uh, demons, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. God's purposes for us are never going to be thwarted. The Lord will vindicate his promises to you one day. You can believe it. Ironically, God uses all these things that seem to be against us to actually accomplish his purpose for us in Jesus Christ. God works in our ways that may seem like failures at first, but, you know, he looks like he blew it because he hadn't shown up. But as we dig through the rubble of our lives, if you want to make a metaphor out of this archaeology, and the rubble is often our own doing, God works through that, and we will discover 
that uh, he has worked providentially to bring about to bring about our vindication and that his word is actually true so those three lessons that we learned let me repeat those for you the first is that the world will tell you that obedience to god will threaten your security don't believe it don't believe it the world will tell you that obedience to god will threaten your security don't believe it second The world will tell you that your spiritual life should be convenient. Don't believe it. The world will tell you that your spiritual life should be convenient. Don't believe it. And then finally, the Lord will vindicate his promises to you one day. Believe it. The Lord will vindicate his promises to you one day. You know, as we said, the world, the flesh, and the devil is always going to tempt us with Jeroboam's words. It's too much. It's too hard. Just wit. This spiritual life, Christian life, is all promises for the future. What's for you here and now? Just take the shortcut. Don't go up to Jerusalem. There's plenty of opportunities right here, right now. Don't believe it. Sin always provides a substitute that seems easier and more attractive, promises an immediate need, but it is cotton candy. There's no substance to it. Our relationship with God is a matter of obedience, not always a matter of convenience. So take that, that long walk, as it were, to Jerusalem every single day. Go spend that time with the Lord in his word. And if you can, do your best to make that convenient. You have a designated place in your house, a designated spot where you meet with the Lord. Do you have a designated time? Have you made that commitment to do that? It doesn't have to all be hard. Make it as, as, easy and as, uh, as easy as it can be for you because there's enough that isn't easy, some things we can't help ourselves with. And trust that obedience is the best way even when it seems to get in the way of what you want. Let's pray. Father God, Indeed, in the end, we will find your way so much more satisfying, and we live with the end a lot longer than we live with the moment. Jeroboam had such an opportunity, but chose to respond to his fear and his feelings instead of the scriptures. This is our daily life. Give us the strength and wisdom to learn from his mistakes and to see the big picture, to have faith that sometimes our walk with you is not going to be convenient, but it can be obedient, that we can trust you and follow you and lean on you in those moments of struggle when it seems like we are lacking or where something threatens us or we're fearful. Give us the wisdom of this passage today. And remind us that you want to strongly support us if we'll simply trust you, simply obey you, simply walk in your way, and we will discover that that is the best way in the long run. Father, we pray for any who are here today who may not know the Lord Jesus Christ, that their heart is somehow thinking that they're going to earn their way to glory by living a good life by going to church, by giving money, by doing this or that. But their sin, no matter what they do, stands in the way. Thank you that Jesus died on the cross to pay for that sin. 
that his resurrection shows that that sin was paid for and satisfied. And that by simple faith in that act of Jesus' death on the cross, by faith in him, all of our sins are paid for, are forgiven. And we have a promise and hope of our resurrection in the future. We pray for anyone here today that needs to make that decision, that they would not go one more day without making it. Father, we love you. We commit ourselves to you. Thank you for the uh, example of Jeroboam, though a bad one. It gives us motivation to not follow his example. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Wayne. It was a great insight. Have a uh, blessed Independence Day tomorrow, and uh, don't forget to set your uh, alarms for Saturday. We're going to be right next door for our lunch at noon, and then uh, followed by the movie of Noah at uh, 1 o'clock. So until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.